College campuses represent thousands of students, faculty, and staff forming small cities within a city, and universities can hold outsized impacts on our environment. Universities are often also leading the way on trying out new ways to enhance sustainability and create cleaner systems and ways of thinking about how we live where we live. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Elizabeth Clark, Sustainability Coordinator at the University of Houston, uh, Richard Johnson, the Senior Executive Director of Sustainability at Rice University, and Christiana Bowles, Doctoral Candidate in Higher Education Administration at Texas A&M. Elizabeth, Christiana, Richard, thank you for joining. Thank you for having us back. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get into this really interesting, and I'm excited to have this conversation around sustainability measures that your institutions are taking and what that looks like on a college campus. But first, I just want to hear a little about how you actually got into this work. What brought you into sustainability? Why did you wind up in university sustainability? Um, And I'll just flag for folks that that Christiana, you're you're here representing Texas A&M. You also work at Rice currently. Uh, So we've got your Texas A&M hat on and are asking you to talk a little about that. but, you know, if, if you jump between the two, totally fine. Uh, but, yeah, just start us off with, you know, how, how did you wind up in these roles? Yeah, I can definitely go first. Um, so I originally was not looking into sustainability as a field of study nor a field of work. Um, I'm originally from Virginia. I am still not used to Texas summers. <laughs> um, but when I was graduating from James Madison University back home in Virginia with my biology degree, I was looking for graduate programs, and I ended up following my now fiancé to Texas A&M. I ended up getting a master's there in recreation park and tourism sciences, and being a first-gen college student, I knew that when I was going for graduate school, I would have to work my way through college, much like I did in undergrad, and I was very fortunate to find that the Department of Residence Life at Texas A&M had a graduate assistant sustainability coordinator position focused on educating and engaging our about 11, 12,000 on-campus Aggies at Texas A&M. I fell in love with it, um, and I didn't want to leave, and I knew if I graduated and didn't follow up with another degree program, I would have to leave. So I took a chance and applied to the Educational Administration Program at Texas A&M for my PhD in Higher Education Administration. was very fortunate to receive it. Um, and then in April of last year, my graduate assistantship at ResLife turned into a full-time job, Much with significant others, you make life decisions together, and my fiancé got a job in Houston. Was very fortunate to remember my now current boss, Richard, had the current position at Rice for the Sustainability Program Coordinator for Campus, and that's how I ended up in Houston. Terrific. Weston, I started about as far from sustainability as possible. I was a highway engineer. Oh, Um, I did not know that, Richard. (laughs) I graduated from Rice in 1992 with a degree in civil engineering, and I started uh, work in Northern Virginia as a highway engineer, and it was a miserable experience. (laughs) Um, And what I realized was uh, I was doing work that didn't align with my values. Mm. And um, so I thought, gosh, what what am I going to do? How am I going to dig myself out of this (laughs) hole? So obviously you think, well, grad school, right? and I, I applied to a program in urban environmental planning at the University of Virginia uh, because it was in-state. It was affordable. Um, and um, I thought, well, I'll rebel against myself, and I'll be a transportation planner. I'll try to stop all of these terrible mistakes by these highway engineers. I didn't want to be part of that system. 
And a funny thing happened along the way. Um, the dean of the School of Architecture at the time was a guy named William McDonough, who is a well-known green architect, uh, thinker, and author of the book Cradle to Cradle. Mm. And I got to be his teaching assistant, and it completely changed the direction of my life and my career. Mm. Um, and so I've been in sustainability since the mid-1990s. I started working at Rice in 2004, and um, I hope to do it till I retire. I mean, I will say, you know, as, as any professor will tell you, we, we do love a good story about a, a teacher changing people's <laughs> lives, so, which I think we'll talk about in a bit as well with your, with your own engagement with students. But uh, yeah, Elizabeth, jump in. Yeah, so like these two, I don't know if any of us actually plan to go into sustainability <laughs> as a career. Um, I was originally, as my boss calls me, a lab rat. Um, <laughs> I was very into molecular biology going into college, and so I studied, um, I was in a plant lab where we were doing hormonal changes within plants and like seeing how that affected their growth, specifically for like crop development. Um, I went to school at UT Austin, so mm. hook them. Uh, <laughs> and I can give a little bit of insight into their sustainability actions as well, if that's helpful. But um, after graduation, I sort of realized that molecular biology really isn't my jam. I was very into the like interdisciplinary approach mm. to food systems and agriculture and things like that. And so I looked into sustainability programs mm. um, and found this position at U of H for their sustainability coordinator um, under facilities. And so since then, I've been really getting into the operational approach to sustainability, leaning away from biological systems more towards like building operations and things like that, and learning a lot in this brand new position. So, you know, I think that that fact that you mentioned that interdisciplinarity already is actually something really significant that, you know, certainly folks come from different backgrounds and sustainability work, but also it is a field that demands, we're talking about this a little earlier, you know, knowing a lot about a lot of different things, or at least having some basic familiarity across these different ideas, you know, from Richard, your engineering background over to I'm more communications and culture. And, you know, I mean, but different ways of thinking of how do we engage around these issues? and these topics and what are the skills that you need and it is really kind of a, a broad set of things that that folks are you know finding their way into to these paths so I'm, I'm so excited to speak with all of you about this and and just to start us off I, I would love to know some about you know you're all at different campuses all around Texas um, and and you know certainly if you want to bring in Austin too that's great but what are some of these uh, some of the broader steps that university campuses are trying to, to meet are there are there goals we're trying to meet are there you know really important important initiatives that you're seeing. Um, I was saying at the top, you know, just universities are really quite massive when we actually get into it. You know, Rice, I think, is the, the smallest player at the table, and it still represents 10, 12,000 people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some of these larger places, we can think of A&M, you know, that, that town is that university, right? And like, that's not yes. unique to these kind of universities. And so really, universities as leaders in sustainability, I think, is really important, um, both for trying out new things, but also demonstrating ways that larger entities and cities can adopt some of these measures. So yeah, I'd, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear about what what the big goals of these places are and what some of these steps that we're taking to try to meet them are. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it will come as no surprise that uh, addressing climate change is something that ties a lot of universities together. There's mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of universities have set um, goals to become carbon neutral. Um, just with, Just <laughs> within the U.S. and, and well over a thousand um, uh, internationally. And... Um, you know, you can think of universities as being like small cities, right? Um, 
except the population is really skewed to an 18 to 22 demographic for the most part <laughs> with a benevolent dictatorship that you know, regularly gets skewered by the students in the student newspaper um, because there is still freedom of the press. Uh, <laughs> But um, you know, but nevertheless, so uh, a lot of universities' actions center around how do we deal with this issue of uh, of climate change, but also because of this this particular demographic wanting to essentially practice what they preach because students are learning about climate change in the classroom, and then they're saying, oh, well, what is you know what is my university doing about this? And mm-hmm. if they hear nothing, that's not a satisfactory <laughs> response. Um, are you suggesting that young people are especially vocal when they're not satisfied with an answer that's uh, unsatisfactory? <laughs> they have a particular talent. God bless them for it. Uh, what I, would we do without it? <laughs> I love that, though, because it does actually demonstrate, I think, a really important value of that kind of model of democracy, of, mm-hmm. of demanding, you know, we want change here. And I think university students are very good at that at the university level. And it actually, it's something that we hope they carry over into their, their public civic lives of, right. of demanding and advocating for these changes more broadly. And um, one of the things I've really focused on in my first year here at UH has been benchmarking like mm. the top universities and what they're doing in terms of sustainability. UH has set the goal to become a top 50 public university. Oh, wow. And so that's kind of how we determine where we are at this point. Um, and so if one of our programs is lagging behind, say our sustainability programs is, are, are lagging behind, um, Students will see that, and it'll be it'll act like an anchor for the rest of our university. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't really advance into the top fifty if these programs are lagging. So, if we don't set these climate goals, if we don't set these long term strategic plans, then we, we won't be able to advance like that. And then I think that there's also a discussion to be had about like private versus public universities, mm. particularly here in Texas. <laughs> we're pretty constrained when we're being funded by the state mm-hmm. versus a, a lot of uh, private universities have a bit more freedom in determining what their goals can mm. be and, um, you know, more more say in how to set those goals and the timelines for them. Um, so that's one of the big obstacles we've run into in the last year or so is just trying to um, – create these strategic plans that also support the long-term goals of the university, Mm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. Mm. Richard, I think I derailed you a little bit earlier, so I... Well, I I was just, (laughs) I was actually going to to say in response to Elizabeth, you know, some of our colleagues at NC State were not allowed to use the the phrase climate change in their work. And these are folks in the sustainability office. You know, that's how messed up state politics can be. I mean, thankfully... You know, being in the, you know, uh, behind the hedges at 6100 Main Street, we haven't had to worry about that at Rice. But uh, um, right. I, I know, Christiana, your, your peers at A&M are struggling a lot right now with um, some of the changes that have come in through, um, through the state, and in particular as it relates to DEI initiatives and how oh, they goodness. connect with sustainability. Yeah, that, that is something that my colleagues in the Office of Sustainability at Texas A&M continue to struggle with, especially on a campus of A&M size. I mean, 70,000 students, not to mention all the faculty and staff that go into keeping the campus running. I mean, um, that legitimately is a small city. That's just... <laughs> yes, yes. It does make me chuckle, though, when I say, like, oh, let's meet somewhere on Rice's campus. And it's like, can we take a golf cart? Or that's too far. I'm like, have you been to any other school? <laughs> it's oh, a very nice wait. walk. Yeah. I did my undergrad at LSU, so I, I feel your... <laughs> yes, yes. Um, 
But one thing that was of concern, so when talking about like benchmarking and goals, Texas A&M, we have the Campus Sustainability Mm -hmm. Master Plan that was put together by our Office of Sustainability, and it outlines a variety of goals, both short, medium, and long-term around a variety of sustainability initiatives, whether that's wastewater and stormwater management, um, increasing recycling diversions from the landfill, um, civic engagement, mm. volunteerism, and things like that, really focusing on sustainability holistically. Because I, when I introduce myself at conferences um, that aren't sustainability-focused, and I say, oh, I'm the sustainability program coordinator for Rice, they're like, oh, so you recycle. It's like, <laughs> yes, and. <laughs> there is a whole wide array of sustainability topics that all intersect. Um, it really is an intersectionality mm. you know, area of work and study. Um, mm. So one thing that we did at Texas A&M that I really, really like um, is not only do we have our campus sustainability master plan outlining how A&M as this giant monster of a university with so many moving you know, wheels in the machine can be sustainable. We in Residence Life, um, when Air St. Gross, the firm that was doing the campus plan, was coming to redo it and update it and realign our goals and see where we were at from the previous plan, our executive director, Mishnarni Riddle, said, you know, we, we should make one for residence life. I mean, we have about 12,000 of this 70,000 on campus. We have, at the time, a graduate assistant sustainability coordinator. How can we, as a singular department with all we oversee, also advance sustainability, tie into the campus master plan? Um, and so that same year, both of the plans came out concurrently. Um, mm. I think residence life is a great area, um, not to be biased because that's my dissertation area of study <laughs> as res life and barriers to engagement and pro-environmental behaviors. But seeing how we can take some of the burden off the Office of Sustainability and say, hey, this yes. is how we're going to do our part as just one wheel in the, this machine, and you can focus on all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, And actually, our athletic department just released their athletic sustainability master plan that was modeled off of us doing ours from the campus plan, which is really cool, of how they can be sustainable in athletics programming. I just saw that. That was so cool. And that's one thing that I really admire about A&M is the way that y'all all move in one direction, even though y'all are massive, massive campus. It's all very connected. It's all our Office of Sustainability, Kelly Wellman and her team. I don't know how they do it. (laughs) But um, yeah, that's been really amazing. And I think, as Elizabeth said earlier, being in a private institution now and seeing the differences with how quickly decisions can be made, Mm -hmm. um, how we can more, I don't want to say more easily, but they're more willing and able to put forth money into trying or piloting new things. Whereas when you're at a public institution, you want to be a little more conservative and like, you know, careful because you are reporting back to the state and this is taxpayer money. You want to be fiscally responsible for the state. Which is not to say that private institutions are fiscally irresponsible. No, no, no. But they, they perhaps do have a greater degree of, uh, of flexibility. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, some of what you're, you're hinting at, though, with that piloting, with that testing of ideas, is why I'm so interested and excited about the idea of university campuses and sustainability, is these are, you know, often, you know, we, we, whatever you want to call them, right? Laboratories for discovery or, you know. Living labs. <laughs> yes. <you know? laughs> 
But to your point on the sustainability office putting out a master plan and then even the athletic department picking up on that, the way that an office can lead, can model things, can create a template for others to follow even, becomes something that's really invaluable for other groups to pick up. And it's, again, why I'm excited by this idea of, you know, if these are kind of small city laboratories for us to experiment with and see what works and what's successful, you know, how does that translate outside of the university and what models can we offer to to other cities, that becomes really exciting, at least in, in my thought process. No, that's one of my favorite things. And I would be remiss not to say this on air in case my <laughs> former boss ever hears this, Dr. Carol Binzer. We like to say that, you know, our favorite word is pilot and our mm. second favorite word is snowball because so many small <laughs> things snowball out of control. Um, like back at A&M, we worked with Trex, which is a company based in my home state of Virginia that makes outdoor decking and furniture from recycled plastic film and wood. Um, turns out my in-laws have that for their decking that I found out a year after working with them. So like (laughs) the world gets smaller. Um, but we started out with a small project of us just collecting in the residence halls, you know, plastic bags from HEB, Mm. Walmart, bubble wrap, the Amazon mailers from students getting their textbooks mailed into them and things like that. And we had some naysayers thinking, you know, no one's going to want to recycle. This is too niche of a recycling. And it certainly snowballed out of control in the best way possible. I think when I left, we were at over 8,000 total pounds of plastic film recycled, which you know how light your HEB bags weigh. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, my colleague in our utilities and energy services department has taken that project over and expanded it out a little more to campus um, to collect all of that. So small things really do snowball quickly. I'm guessing a lot of the people listening right now have that cabinet beneath the sink that is stuffed full of the HEB bags. (laughs) I mean, I do. Um, so something that I, yeah, I wanted to talk about, I want to go, I want to go back for a second. And, and Richard, you had started to bring up um, these carbon neutral goals. Mm. And, and a, a two part question is first, you know, honestly, what is carbon neutrality? Just can we define that term? Because I don't know everyone actually knows what carbon neutral means. And then beyond that, what are we doing to reach that? Because I, I know Rice does have this ambitious carbon neutral by 2030 goal. What are steps that the university is taking to, to meet that? Okay, so. Um uh, you know, there are a number of things that we do in how we operate the university that causes greenhouse gases to be emitted into the atmosphere. Um, we combust fuels such as diesel in our buses and, mm-hmm. and diesel and gasoline and equipment around campus, um, natural gas in our utility plants, and, and these have emissions that go up into the atmosphere. Those are known – I'm going to get a little wonky here. This, sure. These are known as scope one emissions. All right. Okay. <laughs> and then there are things that you purchase that also have emissions associated with them. Um, are these scope like, two emissions? Yeah, so right. electricity. <laughs> good Very good. I'm following. You're I feel all right. <laughs> on. So, so the electricity that you purchase is a scope two emission. Okay. And then there's this category of everything else. You want to guess what it's called? <laughs> it, it could be scope three. It is scope three. <laughs> and so these are emissions that are shared with other people. Okay. So, um, for instance, um, uh, if you go on travel for for the university, say you go to a, um, a conference or something like mm-hmm. that, well, there are emissions related to the uh, to the air travel. Yeah, but are those the university's emissions, or are those you know of United Airlines or Southwest or whomever you chose mm-hmm. to fly, you know, Qantas or whatever? Um, and there there are all kinds of categories like that of shared emissions. You know, when mm-hmm. when when you commute, well. You know, I didn't tell you what car to drive and how far away to to 
live from the university, but yet, you know, as a university, we have an ability to influence those decisions. Mm -hmm. So um, when universities set these goals of of becoming carbon neutral, you need to figure out, okay, which emissions are going to go within that that pledge? Mm -hmm. And so carbon neutral would be, you know, the the net of all those emissions is, is zero. So... Typically, what you will see in the carbon neutral commitments is uh, going going to net zero for scope one and scope two. Okay. And then there's usually some sort of language about we're going to try to reduce scope three by a certain amount. Those are a lot harder to calculate and to get mm-hmm. the data for. It's easy to calculate for, okay, your purchase electricity because, well, you know exactly how much you purchased, right? And there are various emissions factors that we can look up on how the electricity is generated on the grid in Texas. And Texas electricity gets cleaner and cleaner, so that's a good thing. Um, but uh, scope three is a bit of a bugaboo. Um, <laughs> so most focus on, okay, we're going to go carbon neutral for scope one, scope two, and then some sort of goals based on some of those different categories in scope three. And so Rice has set this goal of carbon neutrality by 2030, right? Mm-hmm. And so then what are the steps we're taking to get there? Well, the biggest thing that we can do, our, you know, our largest wedge, if you will, is the scope two, the purchased electricity. Mm. And uh, that's where a shift to renewably sourced electricity would make all the difference. Um, for scope one, um, we have a few different you know, sources of how we combust fuel. So you know, students will, will point to our shuttle buses and, and say, you know, you know, oh, those, you know, those diesel buses spewing all the, you know, all the exhaust, and that must be huge from carbon footprint. But actually, for us, the biggest part of our scope one is the natural gas that we burn on campus. We use it to provide uh, heating, you know, steam for mm. our buildings, um, dehumidification, and also to generate some of our electricity. Mm. Um, so that's part of what we need to unwind. Um, we have a we have a new um, a couple of new uh, well we ca- we call them residential colleges but normal people call them dormitories uh, <laughs> that are that are going to be uh, coming onto campus along with a shared kitchen and um, normally there would be natural gas in that kitchen mm-hmm. um, we've decided to go all electric which is kind oh, of wow. unusual um, we got some inspiration from Microsoft they they uh, they did a completely electric kitchen at their um, campus in Redmond, uh, okay. Washington. And uh, we reached out to them. They gave us a list of all the equipment they used. Our dining director went, went down the list and he's like, yep, this is all good. Let's do it. Okay. Um, so that, you know, so if we couple that with procuring renewable electricity, you know, that's, that's a very positive step. We haven't yeah. expanded that gas use. Well, something I want to ask about, and I think all of you can speak to to some extent, is, um, you know, as you mentioned, these new buildings going up, I think we often do tend to think about, ooh, shiny new building, and Mm. it can be so green and sustainable. Mm. And actually, a lot of the work probably needs to address the fact that, you know, again, university, much like cities, most of it's not new buildings, and we're not just going to tear down everything we've got. You know, depending on the campus, you can be talking about historically protected buildings on on many campuses even. And so what I'm actually really keen to hear about are are what are steps that that universities, but also that, you know, we can think beyond the university, what are steps that institutions can take to retrofit buildings? How are we thinking about making our buildings more sustainable when we're not just going to tear it down and build something new? But I I know this is something that you're attentive to and think about, so I'm, I'm curious about 
what some of those measures are. Yeah, the greenest building that you build uh, is is the one that you didn't have to build, right? Mm. And so I'm a big fan of renovation. I think there's there's several great examples in in Houston. Um, I mean, have you ever been to Post Houston? Oh yeah, downtown. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. So years ago, that was a, a white elephant of a of a post office <laughs> building. I, years ago, I dated somebody whose aunt worked there, um, and you know, so, you know, some fabulous architect came up with a design that has turned that into um, something that's really Instagrammable, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, uh, Rice alum um, uh, 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 Frank Liu of, um, you know, I, I think was the developer on mm-hmm. that. Um, but, I, you know, we need to do those kinds of repositioning and rethink of well, a lot who, of our Well, for those who haven't buildings. been to Post, because it is, as you yeah. mentioned, a huge old post office building, yeah. what's been done there that is impressing you? What are, what are these steps that were taken that, that you're bringing it up? Well, I mean, you, you can imagine that like many um, buildings that are, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old, that the natural inclination will be, oh, that that thing's an eyesore. Let's just knock it down and build something, mm. build something brand new. And um, you know, there, there's all the embodied carbon emissions that it took to to construct that building in in the first place, right? Um, and you know, with with some thoughtful design, you can you can turn it from a white elephant into a, a total diamond. And so, you know, there's now there's way more natural light that comes into that building. Uh, just the programming inside the building. I mean, you know, the food there is really good. <laughs> it is. It's some of the best food in Houston. And, and there, there's there's you know the rooftop garden, and mm-hmm. you know, you, it's it's like a park with great views. Um, but even a little closer to where, a few blocks from where we are right now, you know, the Ion uh, in in Midtown that used to be an old Sears building. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, back when I moved to Houston in the seventies, that's where we went. If you know, we need to go to Sears and get some tools or something like that. Um, and that's another building that you could imagine would easily have been have been torn down. But uh, you know, that was one that you know Rice oversaw renovation, and it's now that you know the anchor of an innovation district. Um, and it and it looks great, you know. They they took they they peeled back some of the horrible renovations that have been done to the building over the years and restored some of the you know the original character of, of how that building was was constructed and then and then really added to it as well. To that point, I think I'm thinking a little bit of Rice, but I also know UH also has goals. Um, both the Post downtown, uh, but also the Ion because it's one of our buildings are, are LEED certified, LEED, exactly. um, which is maybe a term that some folks have heard. I know UH has has LEED certification goals. I know Rice has goals. Um, can you just tell us what is that certification? If, if I see it on a building, because I, I do often walk by them and see them, what does that mean? What is it telling me about the building and the construction process and some of these things? And why does that matter? Mm-hmm. Well, LEAD is an acronym for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design, and it's pretty much the metric for sustainable buildings. So the post, I know, is LEAD Gold, the gold standard for (laughs) building sustainably. Um, And it has a few different categories. Like other sustainability reports, it's pretty interdisciplinary, looking at sustainable site selection, Mm -hmm. looking at uh, sustainable materials, looking at air quality, and... um, uh, specifically like the health of the users of the building, which mm. is really important. And so when people think of sustainable sustainable buildings, a lot of times they think, okay, dollar signs. Like it, it costs a lot of money to build a building and even more so if you're trying to do it right. Um, but studies have shown that the lifetime cost of, the, of a sustainable building is actually far lower mm. than a normal building. 
Um, and so UH in particular, we've committed to a minimum of lead silver for all of our new buildings. Um, and then we're also looking to improve the sustainable operations within our existing buildings because we have hundreds of those on campus. So right now, I think that we have three or four certified lead projects and about seven in the works. Oh, wow. But we're also looking at operational changes that we can make on campus, as well as um, when we're talking about sustainability, it's about engagement with our campus users as well it's not just it doesn't just stop at facilities you have to expand it so that everybody on the campus is moving in that same direction like we talked about earlier Mm. that was one thing we did at a&m that i really enjoyed um i really miss it so obviously twelve thousand of seventy thousand students living on campus it takes a while to build up a new res hall Mm. um to house individuals so it's not really feasible for us just to tear down a building while we build a new one and then displace, you know, several hundred students. Um, So a way that we got to invoke campus as a living lab, but also look at ways that we could retrofit our existing buildings and residence life was to host what we called the U challenge or utilities challenge. Now that originally started out as an energy reduction competition between the res halls, which we quickly learned um, was not going to be feasible or equitable because, you know, a brand new building versus the first dorm built on campus, they are very different in how they were constructed and what machinery is in there. So, you know, even if this one hall didn't shower the entire month, they would still likely consume just as much or maybe even more water just from how it was designed. So we shifted the focus to say, okay, Let's make it more research and engagement-based, taking what they're learning in their classes, whether they're an engineering major, a philosophy major, a communications major, and give them a residence hall and a team of their peers, either self-elected, you know, you and your friends, or you can come in and I can put you on a team with other students. Here's your residence hall. Here's the last couple of years of utility and energy usage from that building. We'll take you on a tour with one of our um, formerly called energy stewards, look Mm. at the mechanical rooms, check out the building envelope, how the windows are, um, maybe even get some roof access, which was always very popular for some reason, (laughs) just going on a roof. Um, Rooftops are great. (laughs) They they are. Um, And then your team comes up with different, not only um, operational and like engineering facilities, um, Solution. So like what new equipment can we switch out to make it more sustainable, more energy efficient, but also that engagement piece because mm. students are very ingenious when they want to be. And even <laughs> if you made every building lead platinum, I guarantee you students would find workarounds to like occupancy sensors and things turning off when they're trying to study or hang out, what have you. Um, and then we would host a competition, you know, come present to our senior staff, our executive director for the department, our executive director for the Office of Sustainability, Utility Energy Services, our VP for Student Affairs, lay out, you know, this is the building we were given, this was what we had, these are our proposed ideas, the return on investment for the equipment. Um, And it was really great. We put all of the recommendations, whether a team quote unquote won the competition or not, into a giant spreadsheet that I reviewed every single year with our ResLife staff. Um, So our director of facilities, our executive director, my direct um, executive director, um, and went through, okay, what can we put in the budget for this coming fiscal year? What things can we check off and show students that their ideas aren't just going to sit on a shelf and collect dust somewhere. And we might not be able to, you know, bring in this fancy new piece of equipment until it becomes a little lower in cost, 
but we will continuously look at it. And as soon as we're able to financially or in the construction schedule, what have you, we will work to enact the ideas you brought forward, which has been really, really cool. And I think Mm -hmm. when I left, we had implemented out of, I don't even know how many total ideas there were across, you know, six years, but about 50 of them we'd been able to actually enact both from a maintenance, a machinery and facility standpoint, but also some gamification for events for students, some fun interactive things like a swap store that my Aggie Eco reps just opened up this uh, fall semester. So, so proud of y'all if any of y'all are listening or see this later. <laughs> um, but that was really fun and a great way to bridge the gap of, okay, we can't just tear all these buildings down. Mm-hmm. How can we get student buy-in into the retrofitting process, but also give them a chance to get some class credit or really take what they're learning in the classroom and implement it on their university mm-hmm. campuses. Mm-hmm. It's it's so exciting to see my generation really have that accountability mm-hmm. when it comes to sustainability. I know that you can't see me through the radio, but I just turned 23, <laughs> and I'm the age of most of the students that I work with. Yeah. Um, and so we really get to share that passion and that excitement for changes on our campus. So it's it's really cool to see people to be like, responsible mm-hmm. for the sustainability on their campus. And that can only go so far, which is yep. wh- where we come in for, you know, playing the role in facilities and operations, but also having student buy-in and seeing that they really, really care about the changes happening on campus is super exciting. Yeah, that longevity piece. They get the ball rolling, and then when they have to leave, you know, when they graduate. Snowball. Although, yes, yes. <laughs> we can keep it going. This is a really important point, though, because um, – it's, it's so easy to become overwhelmed by environmental problems, especially mm-hmm. climate change. Mm-hmm. But what y'all are talking about is empowerment. When students have an opportunity to actually make a difference on the campus where they are, you know, that, that counteracts the narrative that you can't do anything to solve these problems, right? And it mm-hmm. sets them up for being able to do things in the future after they graduate in the workplace or at home. Um, so I love those stories. And students do tinker with the buildings, by the way. That does happen. <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked to hear that. Uh, I never did anything like that when I was an undergrad, never. Um, I, I did want to ask to that point, you know, I, I, I think we, we understand, or most of us understand intuitively, young people are very passionate about a lot of these issues. There is a lot of energy. But I think, you know, what you're bringing up, Richard, with that kind of, sometimes we call it climate grief or, you know, climate anxiety, mm-hmm. that there are genuine frustrations. And so I think all of you teach and mentor students and work with them. And, you know, both, I'm, I'm curious about, yeah, how do you get them engaged? How do you, you know, reach out to young people and bring them onto these issues? But also, how do you keep them mobilized? So what do you give them that, you know, it sounds like you're already naming some things, but I'm curious about working past that, that grief and that anxiety and, and turning that into action in different ways. If you can speak some of your experiences with students on your campus, since you are around young people all the time working on these issues. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I've always leaned on is whatever you're passionate about, the things that I'm passionate about around sustainability might not be your cup of tea. And that's not to say you don't care about them. It's just not a very, not a more salient issue or passion area for you. Um, so one thing I have always enjoyed is just asking my students of, hey, it's a brand new semester. What are some things that you've seen since your time here at AM or at Rice that, you know, frustrate you or that's like, hey, like this is good, but this could be better. Let's throw out some ideas for some projects to work on over the course of the next semester, potentially next year, and then just go from there. So one thing that my Aggie eco reps at Texas A&M were noticing um, in addition to the big move out collections that we were doing in residence life at the end of every year was that students were just, you know, 
begging friends to take clothes, swapping clothes on their own. And they said, well, let's, let's find a way to like make this a fun, engaging event. And then we can take the leftover clothing items that are usable to like some local shelters, or if they're just too cut up, we can partner with one of our other student organizations, the national residence hall honorary who makes dog toys as one of their service projects and use the torn up t-shirts or towels or blankets and collaborate that way. Well, that snowballed um, (laughs) into a monthly pop-up shop and we actually had kind of a, an aha moment, which these are my favorite things to see um, the physical light bulb go off <laughs> above students' heads. We had a student who came into one of our pop-up swap shops that said, hey, I heard about this randomly through a friend's group me. You know, I don't live on campus because um, they're, as a residence life student organization, they're focused mostly on our 12,000 on-campus students. Um, not to say it's exclusive to on-campus. And you know, I just want to let you all know that I appreciate you offering this because it was not, uh, you know, you give an item, you can take an item. It's just mm-hmm. donate whatever you don't want, take whatever you need, Aggie honor system. Um, but thank you all for doing this because I just got kicked out of my house and I literally just have the clothes on my back and nothing else. I've been couch wow. surfing, borrowing clothes from friends. Wow. And so we said, yes, take, take whatever you need. Um, and you could see amongst my executive team of the Ecoreps, like, you know, they were focused more on like, oh, this is fun, you know, thrifting kind of on campus kind of a deal. I can refreshen my wardrobe and get some cute items for my room. And then it really hit them like, this is an all-encompassing sustainability engagement event. And so we took that story back to our executive director and she said, what space do you want on campus? And we were fortunate that we had an old office that used to be used by the Ecoreps before we um, shared a larger office with our two other uh, Res Life student organizations. And said, oh, we can use this as a temporary, temporary permanent <laughs> swap store, um, which they just opened up this fall. And from what I've seen and heard from both my students and my former boss has just been thriving. So it's been great to see them evolve from oh this is just a diversion thing and like a fun you know thing to oh my gosh we really are making a difference Mm -hmm. and the long-term goal which i hope is a long-term goal (laughs) is to (laughs) to partner with like our career center the student success initiatives office and move the swap store out of just this tiny little space and make it more central to campus and a larger scale project um which has been just so heartwarming to see and it's one of my favorite things to to keep track of with them so Mm-hmm. Should we continue the move-out theme for just a moment? Go for it. <laughs> um, I've been teaching a, a, a class since 2005. It actually um, uh, it pre-existed my time at, at Rice, and the, cl- the students helped to create my job, actually. Um, God bless them. <laughs> and um, it uses the class uses projects uh, that focus on the, the campus as a laboratory mm-hmm. for learning about sustainability. We have several classes like that now. And so at the beginning of the, um, of the semester, you know, I, I just asked them, what sort of environmental problems do you see around campus? And students really do focus on all of the waste from, from move out. Mm. And especially, uh, you know, the composition of Rice students has changed over the years. It's no, you know, years and years ago, it was, you know, a lot of folks from Texas. Now it's from all over the world. Well, 
you know, if you, if you come from somewhere where you have to fly, then, you know, if you picked up like a, you know, a bicycle and a TV and a refrigerator and all those sorts of things, you're not going to check those in your carry-on <laughs> back to, you know, back, back to, you know, India or Seattle or wherever you happen to come from. So, um, you know, those often would just get tossed aside. It, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's just stunning the types of materials that, um, that get thrown away. And so, the students said, well, let's, let's find a way to divert as many materials as possible. And I said, well, there's someone who knows something about this at A&M. It turned out to be Christiana. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, they, they started working with facilities folks and, and grounds folks and folks from our residential college system and created this, um, this uh, proposal for what to do during the May move out. And, and they did such a good job on, on their project that – I hired several of them to continue the work in the spring. By that point, Christiana was was working at Rice. And um, so it turned out that when move-out happened in May, there were over 5,000 pounds of materials like clothing and that sort of thing that wow. were um, that were collected and donated, plus um, a lot of food that had not expired mm-hmm. and had not been um, mm-hmm. opened that went to our food pantry on campus because there really are – students and staff in in need and then we had um was it over a hundred um dormitory refrigerators um Uh, i forget the exact number but housing and dining um can collect mini fridges from students and actually we'll clean those out make sure that they're working properly and then coordinate with the student uh success initiatives office to connect with first-gen, low-income students in need who can't purchase a brand-new mini-fridge and just yeah. give them one to have in their room when they live on campus, which is amazing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and and, and so uh, we ended up getting an, an award for this from Keep Houston Beautiful. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I, some of the listeners are probably thinking, well, I mean, it's insanity that you win an award for not throwing perfectly good merchandise <laughs> right. into a landfill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, I mean... Welcome, welcome to Western capitalism. Yeah. You know, we only have about a minute more before we have to go over to our next segment. But I, I wanted to see if you had anything you wanted to share, Elizabeth, before we transition. Is oh, there an- it just made me think about you were talking about the student composition, mm-hmm. and UH has a very large portion mm-hmm. of our students from the immediate Houston area, mm-hmm. and so talking about food pantries and things like that. Being able to provide sustainability programs that's, that are specifically crafted for your student population mm-hmm. to provide mm-hmm. things that they need, mm-hmm. services that they need, yeah. also really emphasizes the importance of sustainability to the students and just really kind of creates like the, the motion behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can, they can yeah. internalize that importance and, and keep it going. Yeah. Well, this has been so exciting to hear about the incredible work that your various campuses have been up to and and learning about what university sustainability looks like and and how that resonates outward. So I just want to thank you again so much for your time and for joining us today. Uh, I've really enjoyed getting to chat with all of you. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back. Thank you. Uh, We'll go now over to uh, a series uh, by Sienna Yim, one of our researchers, who has an interview on uh, activism and how to improve green spaces locally and how that's really a community-driven effort. So we'll go now to Sienna. Welcome back to Paving the Path to Walkable Communities. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Antonio Juan Sorto, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Bullard Center for Environmental and Climate Justice and has a PhD in urban planning and environmental policy. He has also served in various leadership roles with numerous community, public service, and educational organizations in Houston. Join us as we delve into equity in urban spaces and the power of local organizations in the urban planning realm. 
thank you again for joining me today. So can you start by briefly introducing yourself and what you do? Sure. Uh, so Dr. Juan Antonio Sorto, uh, I am a uh, postdoc research fellow at the uh, Texas Southern University Butler Center for Climate Change and Environmental Policy. And I'm also a uh, professor at the University of Houston downtown, where I teach uh, political science. All right. Awesome. Thank you for introducing yourself. So I really want to just ask you some overall broad questions. And I want to touch on equity and social justice in urban spaces. And I saw that you had a piece on parks and equity. And so what factors do you think we need to consider in urban design to make sure that is equitable so that marginalized communities have access to resources and parks and aren't left in the dark? Um, the biggest thing that you need to consider is obviously the user themselves, the community, the, the the people who are going to be utilizing these spaces. Now, if you are trying to create equity within a certain community that's already been established, meaning that uh, has a long history of uh, of being a community, uh, the very first key thing that you need to consider are the stakeholders themselves. Um, it doesn't make sense of you creating a, an open space if the users who are who are your target audience are from a community that doesn't necessarily understand um, uh, what your project is about, then you're just, you know, setting up yourself for failure. So I'll give you an example. When I worked for the Buffalo Bio Partnership, which is a local nonprofit organization in the Houston area, um, their mission is to create green spaces, equitable green spaces, uh, and particularly within the East End, which is primarily Latino, uh, first, even migrant uh, stakeholders. And then the north part of the bayou, uh, which is what is, why it's called Buffalo Bayou uh, Partnership, they have the African-American community of Fifth Ward. And so they're currently looking uh, very aggressively to create programming. And uh, originally they had a, uh, which I talked about a little bit in this piece, um, about how in their original uh, design, they had created pickleball as an uh, opportunity to to have within the green space. Uh, Latinos and African-Americans, for the most part, don't even know what pickleball is, pickleball is. But yeah, you're trying to create a space that is going to have pickleball. So who's your target audience? Are you targeting the actual people themselves or the people that may be coming from outside the community? So the biggest factor here is that you need to start, uh, or, or you know, design teams need to start by first understanding the actual uh, community themselves. Uh, if they are creating spaces within existing communities, if you're just something, another, if you're just creating an open space that it's, there's no design, there's no community in there, then you're more than welcome to free to, to, you know, design as you wish. But, you know, that, that's how you bring equity is bring is by engaging the community through public meetings and so forth. Right. And that's something that you do a lot of, right? That mm -hmm. you're engaging communities. So, I want to kind of talk about the small organizations. So these often play a crucial role in community development. So could you share insights on how smaller organizations can effectively mobilize and engage people to drive positive change in urban planning and environmental initiatives? 
Yeah, so um, my specialization um, is community participation. So that's uh, the basis of my dissertation, that what I am very passionate about. How do you bring uh, community together uh, where they're the ones that are driving uh, the decision-making power and not necessarily the design team or the policymakers? Even if you're from a very like let's say you're an organization that's just starting out, uh, understanding that community engagement is a slow uh, process. And that is very much true. I mean, you're trying to engage different personalities, uh, people who uh, either are you know, um, just arriving in, in, in the community to people who have generations and generations of history, uh, built already within the, or within their own community. So, uh, as a small organization, what I would suggest is focus on that one piece that you're very passionate about and do not let, um, uh, mission creep, uh, influence your decision making or your, or your actual goal. So if your goal, for example, is to bring a children playground let that be the goal that you have until you accomplish that um yes things will happen uh along the way we live in a city that you know will uh, encounter natural disasters hurricane harvey winter storms and yeah sometimes organizations um what i've seen from personal experience especially the smaller ones is that they, they start off by, you know, this is my mission. And then all of a sudden, because of these natural disasters, or maybe there's some life changing event that happens within these communities, they miss, they start going outside <clears throat> that original goal. And so the focus needs to always be what is it that you're trying to actually accomplish? Why did you actually get into this to begin with? And then continue to work on that. Yes, you can get involved in other things within the community, but um, keep yourself um, mission driven to whatever mission you are passionate about. And so uh, from a small scale organization, uh, what I would say is, is that look into what is it that you're actually trying to accomplish and and stick to that um it may be very difficult because you're going to have a lot of different opinions people uh within the community that will uh feel that will feel that their voices are important and they are but also as a small organization you need to understand that you also need to be um uh i guess have a peace of mind and, and understand that you're, you need to go in one direction because that happens quite a bit when from small organizations that they start and then they branch out into so many different things without having the actual capacity uh within when i mean capacity meaning you may be a small organization of one but your community is asking you to do 20 different things when you're only one person so it's making sure that you understand your capacity on, on in how much can you actually undertake along the way until you get to a level where you are able to provide everything else that the community is asking for, because you will always find a lot. And, and but managing to stay in that lane is very important. Uh, the lane of what you want, what you started off as your actual goal.
Okay, so as we explore this impactful role of small organizations and community development, I, I want to also talk about the impact on urban livability. So walkability in urban areas, as well as obviously green spaces, which not only just includes parks, like that there's a difference between green spaces and parks, like this is a key aspect to contributing to a community's overall well-being. So how do you think individuals and communities can actively engage in promoting and fostering the this type of walkability and livability in urban spaces? So one is look is understanding your actual um, uh, political makeup of of where you actually are, live. If we're looking at Houston, for example, is understanding that your policymakers, your government entity, is limited to the type of funding that they may be able to provide for your projects. So after you have establish a consensus as a community this is what we want this is what we're going to get uh, or this is what we're trying to get um it's understanding that you're going to have to work with entities outside the the realm of the government meaning private how do you bring in the private entities into the mix where because they're they're the ones that have the money um they're the ones that that will i mean in Houston, at least. Now, other parts of the country may work a little bit differently, but um, it's really understanding uh, your political makeup in order for you to uh, accomplish some of those goals, and especially when it comes to parks and green space. In the city of Houston, uh, we are very much a capitalist pro-private market entity, meaning that our taxes remain low. And that is because uh, we're collecting uh, taxes from 2000s. And if you imagine what 2000 must have been like, you know, compared to 2023, you know, back then uh, in the 2000s, we were, uh, we had uh, CD players. We had almost, you know, we still had some tape players around. And so the city of Houston, in essentially, has been collecting tax dollars from the 2000s, meaning that that's why we're not able to keep up with the demand. There's more people now. And so whatever money that the city collects and the county collects uh, is going towards major other major product projects and not necessarily parks being that particular, you know, on the top of the spending pool. So going outside of what your government can do is very important, meaning where, where do you where is where is money available? The private market. We live in a city that, that is known for the energy sector. So looking into perhaps these private slash public partnerships to uh, to create these green spaces, these walkability spaces uh, within the community threshold. So it's one thing to bring the community together to agree on the design. Okay, we don't want pickleball, but we want a dog park, or maybe they don't want a dog park. Maybe they want a children's playground. And so we're, we're looking at the design, right? How do you design? But how do you actually bring in the design into fruition? That is the next layer of where you where working with the private sector becomes a very important key factor, at least in the city of Houston, of, cre of understanding how to 
create walkability, how to create these bike lanes, how to create these uh, um, uh, accessibility points from from a green space to you know your your home to your business, and so these are multiple layers that needs to, to be taken into account uh, as a way to bring in all of the the green space that that you know we're advocating for uh, to fruition. Yeah, so like obviously green space is very important for overall well being. What is the difference between a green space and parks? Like there's obviously mm-hmm. those are two different things, but they may have some overlap. So can you explain like what the difference is and the importance of green space? So uh, a park is is uh you know basketball court a, a children's playground a swimming pool that's a park but a green space has multiple usage in terms of how uh, a community um uh feels about their surroundings so for example when i was working for the buffalo bio partnership as their community engagement director that community saw green space as a way to navigate uh environmental pollution that was coming from from the ship channel. So for them, green space was about uh, planting trees as a way to um, reduce air pollution. Uh, green space can also be, uh, 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 which this is what the community, uh, uh, you know, uh, highlighted, uh, could be planting trees because it's an easier, it's a, it's an easy access to reduce temperature during uh, the hot summer months. And so how do you, how do you create within these parks, within the playgrounds, the basketball courts? How do you create these spaces that are, that are multiple usages where in this case, they're, they're, they're being utilized to address environmental justice, heat waves, and even to some extent, uh, even crime as well, too. You know, these are spaces where people are going to be utilizing and understanding that it's a public safety issue. So creating benches along the your, your trail systems. So parks is, again, the, the, the amenities that go with it, and then the green spaces as how do you address um, uh, these systemic problems that have impacted a community that they're they're not going to be able to otherwise resolve? Such as uh, they're not going to be able to get rid of the the chemical plants that exist along the ship channel, but maybe you can create the green space to reduce the environmental justice, the pollution that comes out of these chemical plants uh, from the ship channel. All these issues uh, take time, and uh, they are you know, and they take time and. and and you have to be persistent to address them. So uh, it's not a one-size-fit model, um, but definitely, um, you know, I, I guess starting is it's really the, the key factor here. Just start chipping away on something and, and see it happen, but make sure that you understand that it's a slow process. So thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sienna. I'd like to highlight two opportunities to get involved this week. The first is tomorrow, Air Alliance Houston, a local nonprofit organization that works on air quality, is holding their annual open house from 4 p.m. to 6 p.m. This is an informal gathering to learn about their work, hear about major upcoming initiatives around air quality in the city, and learn about ways you can connect with Air Alliance to help make Houston a cleaner city for everyone. No pre-registration is necessary, and you can learn more about Air Alliance and the Open House on their website, airalliancehouston.com, under events. 
Uh, this Saturday, Exploration Green Conservancy is hosting a tree planting from 8 a.m. to noon. Uh, you can learn more about how to attend and meet others interested in helping out our local green spaces by visiting explorationgreen.org. If you want to help plant trees, RSVP to explorationgreen at gmail.com. Lastly, uh, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, and if you're feeling encouraged to give, we encourage you to support one of the great organizations working to make Houston a better place for all of us this year. There are some fantastic nonprofit groups advocating for our safety and health around Houston, many of which we've featured on this show already. Um, so if you're looking for somewhere to give, I really encourage you to support one of these great local organizations. Um, and if you're not interested in supporting one of them, do consider giving to KPFT Houston uh, and continuing our work on nonprofit radio. Next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking about urban farming and regenerative agriculture. Make sure to tune in to learn more about where our food comes from and why it matters to the environment and what local groups are doing to improve our food quality and sustainability. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, uh, leave me a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westontrice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies, with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Bray Voice and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.